All right, this morning I want to do something different and preach in a different way, uh, have a different focus to how I would normally preach a message. This morning I want to take you on a journey, on a journey uh, along the road to Calvary. And uh, this morning I invite you to come with me on a journey that will lead us from the green fields of the Galilee in Israel's north, down along the uh, Jordan Rift Valley, one of the lowest places on earth, and then up to a city, not just any city, the holy city, Jerusalem. This morning I, uh, I want to do something normal, than, different than a, a normal sermon. A normal sermon, we read a passage, we focus on the people, we focus on the events, and we focus on what is spoken but we perhaps miss a whole layer of meaning uh, when we read the Bible normally that is actually a central part in giving a full understanding of the Scriptures. And that is a sense of place. Any uh, movie lover will know that uh, the, the, the setting of a movie, of each scene, is significant. Great effort and great consideration is, uh, goes into working out where each scene will be set. For a, for a person into the theatre, a set designer is, uh, set design is a work of art to try to place the actors in a setting that helps give the full meaning that the director wants to get across. And in the same way, the scriptures are set in a place, but often we miss that place. Now, Earlier this year, or late last year, no, uh, sort of, when was that? April last year, Mel and I had the opportunity to travel to Israel and to Jordan. And we got to see the places of the Bible lands. Now, of course, they've changed. They're not exactly the same. There weren't high rise buildings, etc., and freeways in Jesus' day. But I would have to say that having been to Israel has completely changed the way I read the Bible. When I read about Jesus teaching by the Sea of Galilee, I can see it. When I see him walking up in the hills to spend time in prayer with his father, I can see those hills. When I see Jesus approaching the city of Jerusalem, I can see that too. And it's pretty amazing. So this morning, um, I can't take you there. This is not like Oprah. We're all going to Israel. <laughs> um, but I hope somehow I can take us on that journey. As we lead into Easter 2019, the series The Road to Calvary is about capturing six places in the story, uh, in the journey that Jesus took. And uh, last year, last year, last week, uh, Nat led us off. We talked about the mountain, the mountain where Jesus went up with three of his disciples. And this was uh, in northern Israel, in the Galilee region. Uh, it's one of the most fertile places on earth. People don't realize this. They think all of Israel is dry. It's also mountainous, as we discovered. People wouldn't realize or imagine that Israel has permanent snow on one of its mountains, Mount Hermon. And uh, near permanent snow, almost always there is snow on the mountain of Mount Hermon in Israel, something most people don't realize. There's a ski resort there. Um, Jesus went up either Mount Hermon or Mount Tabor. In the end, it doesn't really matter. But there he was transfigured. 
And the whole three-year ministry of Jesus had been revealing uh, bit by bit who he was. His miracles, his signs, his wonders had, had been pointing to his identity. His teaching with authority that no one else had had been pointing to who he was. But now he went up to the mountain and from within he was transfigured and the glory of God shone out of him. As Nat said, not just reflected, uh, but actually from within. And then the voice of God comes and speaks, speaks to him and says, This is my son whom I have chosen. And it seems in a way a funny way to start an Easter series in the Galilee on top of a mountain with the transfiguration. But actually, it's a great place to start. Because knowing who Jesus is, is central to knowing what the cross is about. A man who is crucified on a cross, who is arrested and, and tried and then crucified unjustly, is a compelling story. It's a sad story. It's a story of injustice. But it's not a story that has great meaning for us. It is the fact that this Jesus is not just a man, but he is the God-man who comes down from that mountain and then heads towards Jerusalem and then is crucified on a cross. It's the fact that he is the Son of God, that he is God in human flesh. That is what makes this story meaningful. Bit of fly just entering the scene. So Jesus comes down the mountain. This is going to be not good. And, uh, and when, he, when he comes down the mountain, just a few verses later in Luke chapter 9, after the story of the transfiguration, it says this, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The ESV says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. There's this sense that when he comes down from the mountain, he sets his face toward Jerusalem, 200 kilometers away. He sets his vision there. He says, this now is the journey that needs to take place. And he begins to walk that road all the way from the Galilee, all the way down south to Jerusalem. It's around, as I said, 200 kilometers it's a route that you take, it's anything but direct. Uh, if you go direct from the north to the south, the central area is completely hilly and has got um, um, areas and, and mountainous areas and um, uh, valleys that, that cut through. And so not, most people would not take that route. You either head off to the, uh, to the west and take the coastal route or you head to the east and you take the route following the River Jordan. The Jordan Rift Valley, by the way, one of the lowest places on earth. Uh, Lake Eyre is 15 metres below sea level, where the journey started for Jesus in the Sea of Galilee, 200 metres below sea level. By the time you reach Jericho, you're 250 metres below sea level. And if you keep going a little bit further south to the Dead Sea, you're 430 metres below sea level. It's the lowest place on earth. The whole area is just completely sunken and uh, and Jesus walks following almost a dead straight the, the river Jordan almost a dead straight path and uh, we need to understand we sometimes miss this that from Luke 9 onwards certainly from Luke 13 onwards all that happens all the ministry that takes place happens while he is on this journey he's walking and uh, so we read Luke 13 then Jesus went through the towns and villages as he made his way to 
Jerusalem. Luke 14, large crowds were travelling with him. Luke 17, now on his way to Jerusalem. Luke 18 is his story in Jericho, where he uh, transforms the life of a tax collector named Zacchaeus. He heals a blind man. This is all on the journey to Jerusalem. A lot of time we just don't realise that. And why were large crowds travelling with him? Well, the disciples were following him, not just the 12, but also a crowd of disciples. But the crowds that were with him were much bigger than that. Why? Because they were pilgrims. They were going up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And Jerusalem in the Passover would double or triple in size, like a, like a coastal, like Victor Harbour in summer. Um, but the, the crowds, tens of thousands of people. It's really unclear how many lived in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. Some estimate as low as 20,000. Um, some would say 50,000, some up to 100. But if we say around 50,000, uh, for the festivals, there could be 150,000 people. Uh, it would triple in size. And so the crowds would be walking and doing this journey uh, with Jesus and in front of him and behind him. So Jesus goes up from Jericho and he makes the journey up to Jerusalem. And whichever way you approach Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is set, uh, set on a hill in the Judean hills. Uh, the, the old city itself slopes away on at least three sides, steeply sloping and then with high walls designed to be a city that's easy to defend and hard to attack. And uh, I remember when we drove up to Jerusalem, we went the coastal route and you just have that sense, we are going up to Jerusalem uh, on a four-lane highway, um, but uh, a little bit different, but uh, you go up to Jerusalem. And, uh, and then when you see Jerusalem, particularly the old city, um, its, uh, its buildings are packed together, it's uh, densely packed, uh, surrounded by these huge walls. And, um, and there it is. That's the view from the Mount of Olives. Um, I don't know how you can capture there. That, uh, that uh, wall along there is a, is a huge high wall. This is a, a huge building. A person would be uh, just a small um, dot there. That's an enormous wall. And this whole area is the Temple Mount and the building there, which is the Dome of the Rock, a Jewish shrine. The place where Muhammad is believed, uh, tradition says, is ascended to heaven from that spot it is also the exact spot where the temple stood there's an interesting history there and um, that is the spot where the temple stood and uh, Jerusalem this city it is perhaps impossible for us to understand what Jerusalem meant to the Jewish people and what it still means places don't mean that much to us this place to the Jewish people meant everything. It meant everything. It was a city founded by King David. Um, it was a city that David's son Solomon, where he built the first temple. And that in that temple where the presence of God entered into, so that God dwelt in the heart of this city in the temple. God's presence dwelt there. And it is the place where people could come to encounter God and to draw close to God. This is the city where heaven touched earth. And that's a model that, uh, in the Jerusalem Museum, a huge model um, of what Jerusalem was like. 
And you can see there that the walls of Jerusalem at the back and on the sides and on the front here, it extends a bit further on the left. But you can see how big the temple was. Um, the temple's actually temple, the temple itself quite small. That's the tall building in the middle there. But the temple courts, it was massive. It's not like 1% of the city. It's, it's occupying an enormous space and it is huge. And, and Jerusalem meant everything. When Jerusalem was um, destroyed in the, in the 500s BC and the people were exiled, they would sing this song. It's one of the Psalms, Psalm 137. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while we are in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand lose its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. That's what they sang. Here we are when they were exiles, separated from Jerusalem. How can we sing the songs of the Lord? We are despairing. May we never forget Jerusalem, where God's presence dwelt. And Jerusalem was a pilgrim city. Jerusalem was the city where the crowds went up. Uh, and as they, as they would go, they would sing. They would sing a song, another Psalm 122. Gee, a, lot of the Psalms, a lot of the Psalms were pilgrim songs. They were the songs that people would sing on the road to Jerusalem. And literally, the crowds would be walking along, and to fill the time, they would sing these songs. I rejoice with those who said, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. This is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statutes given to Israel. There stands the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls, security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. So here's, here's the story. You're a pilgrim. You're traveling from somewhere in Israel. Maybe you've traveled all the way from the Galilee. Maybe you're going to represent your family. It's just you. Maybe you're going with your whole family. And you've been journeying for days or weeks on this road. Perhaps it's the first time. Perhaps it's an annual pilgrimage. Either way, that moment when you come over the rise and you see Jerusalem, you are going to be in awe. But for a long time, you're just traveling, you're singing the songs, you're excited, you can't wait to get there. You are going to go and make a sacrifice. You're going to go and offer a sacrifice in the temple of God. And you approach getting closer and closer. You come through the small villages. Maybe you come the way that Jesus does, through Bethany and Bethpage. You're walking upwards, climbing the, the Mount of Olives. And then finally, you come over the rise. Can we go back to the slide just of the, of the Mount of Olives, the view of Jerusalem? You come over the rise, and there it is, Jerusalem, laid out before you. I'm telling you, if you are an Israelite seeing that sight, you are weeping. You, are, you, are, you would have tears in your eyes. I saw that as a Christian, Israel of Jerusalem. You know, it means something, but when I stood on the Mount of Olives... It's breathtaking. You are, you're, you're, you, are, you are just speechless. 
You just stand there and you just keep... I kept taking photos as we walked down the Mount of Olives. I just kept taking photos of the same thing. I got photos of that view every 50 meters that I descend. It's incredible. And as a, as a, as a pilgrim, you would then go down into the Kidron Valley... And, and you'd go down the Mount of Olives and then you would climb up again from the top of the Mount of Olives down and up and then through the city gates. It's probably half an hour, 45 minute walk. And you would go through the gates and you would actually go under and you would come up and enter into the temple courts. Now, if you're a pilgrim from a country area, you enter those temple courts. You are just, you are mind blown. There would be the sounds of the crowds. There would be the sounds of worship. There would be the smell of the sacrifices being made, of, of, of animals being roasted. There would be the smoke rising up. There would be the priests in their garments. It would be overwhelming. I don't know if I'm describing it for you this morning, but it would be full on. And you would go in there and you would go and make a sacrifice. Now Jesus, into this setting, approaches Jerusalem. He goes through Bethpage, through Bethany, through Bethpage, and he comes to the Mount of Olives, this spot, and he looks down and he sees the temple. And of course, as he comes through the villages, he's placed on a donkey and the crowds begin to praise him. They begin to declare worship and truth. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They began to joyfully praise God and they laid down their cloaks and they others cut branches and laid them down as, as, a, as, a, as a, like a red carpet, as a walk of honour. And people are praising Him. And He comes over the, over the rise and He sees the city and the, peep, the crowds are praising Him. And what does He do? He begins to weep. He begins to weep. It's like this is his moment. He's not going, yes, awesome, thank you. He sees Jerusalem and he starts weeping. Why does he weep? Why does he lament? He says these powerful words. He says... If you, speaking to the city, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God coming to you. Why did Jesus weep? Well, he wept because he heard the worship of the people around him and he could see the temple and what was going on there. And it all looked so good. But the sovereignty of God... The sovereignty of Jesus in that moment is that he actually saw things for what they really were. He saw the heart of the people in that city. 
he knew what was going on in that city was actually not true worship a lot of the time, but actually a great deal of corruption. You see, the religious leaders in Jerusalem were, going, were growing rich at the expense of the pilgrims who were often very poor who were coming into that city. They were having to pay the temple tax. They were having to pay for the animals that they used to purchase for a sacrifice. And there was this incredible uh, hypocrisy that existed amongst the religious leaders. And Jesus saw that. He also knew that these people who were declaring him to be a king, many of them actually misunderstood the kind of king that he would be. And others who were worshipping, he knew, would very quickly fall away when the trials came. In fact, he knew that everyone would fall away and not stand with him when he was arrested and when he was tried and when he was crucified. He knew what the city would do to its king. He knew that its, its king was coming. It seemed that the city was going to welcome him, but he knew that the city would reject him. Not only that, he knew as he looked upon that city and as he looked upon that temple with its incredible, breathtaking architecture, that within a generation, everything that he could see was going to be destroyed. There would not be one stone left from the temple upon that temple mount. Not one. Now, if you had said that to anyone, if you had said that to anyone in Jerusalem, they would say, impossible, impossible. There is no way this, all of this could be destroyed. <clears throat> but today... When you go to Jerusalem, when you stand on that temple mount, there is not one stone left. And when you look over the, over the walls, do you know what you see? You see the stones that were thrown down 2,000 years ago. They're still there. The stones from the temple are still there. The scriptures say every single stone will be thrown down. And it was. And you can still see that today. Jesus' sovereignty needs to be seen in this moment. Jesus sees the end from the beginning. He knows what's going on. He's not overwhelmed or overawed or impressed by what's going on in the city. He knows that there is corruption in that place. He's not even overwhelmed by the worship that is given to him, for he knows that they're going to fall away. He knows that some of them want him to be a king who's going to come and take the city by force. There's huge misunderstanding. But the one person who sees it all and knows it all is Jesus. I want you to see his sovereignty in this picture but I also want you to see his compassion. I want you to see his compassion. He weeps for the city. He loves the city, but he knows that the city is going to turn against him. All right. Now, I haven't talked about us at all this morning. And generally, people are more attentive when I talk about um, us. <laughs> so are you still with me? Here's the question. What is all of this? What does all of this mean for us? What does this mean for you? I want you to consider that. I wrote this sermon and I'd spent a lot of time on everything that I've just preached. But then I had to actually talk about what this all means. And I spent a lot more time then just trying to think about what this means for us. And I came up with some questions. So I'm going to ask you some questions this morning. Six questions. Here's the first one. If Jesus came into our city, what would cause him to weep? 
Jesus approached Jerusalem and he wasn't fooled by everything he saw, but he saw for the city for what it was. If Jesus came into our city or our community, what would cause him to weep? I wonder whether the incredible wealth with which we live with and possess, while many in our world struggle for a daily meal, we struggle with having too much in our homes and how do we declutter them and watch TV shows about how we can minimise what we have, while others would find that concept completely incomprehensible. I wonder whether that would make him weep. I wonder whether he would weep at our addiction to entertainment, how we fill our lives with so much stuff, how we seem to have such busy lives, but deep down so many people's lives are empty. I wonder whether that would make him weep. I wonder whether the fact that we've never been so connected through social media and other things, but most people don't even know their neighbours and there's been an incredible breakdown of community in our city. I wonder whether that would make him weep. I wonder whether the epidemic of mental health and the fact that the number one cause of death for 15 to 44-year-olds in Australia is suicide in this lucky country, I wonder whether that would make him weep. I wonder whether it would make him weep to know that he was entering the city of churches, but we're a city that by and large does not know Jesus at all. People whose hearts are far from God. People with a, the God-shaped hole in their heart, longing for something and not knowing what that is. I think that would make Jesus weep. Second question I ask is this. Do we weep for the things that make Jesus weep? Do you weep for the things that make Jesus weep? Is your heart broken for the things that break Jesus' heart. So easy us, for us to live in the bubble. You know, we get in our car and we drive around and we, we can go from different things and different activities and we can come from, go to church and we can go home and we can live our Christian lives and we cannot allow ourselves to be convicted or compelled or broken by the brokenness that's around us. We can get compassion, fatigue, we can become hard-hearted, you know, the Good Samaritan story is, is a risk for us, isn't it? This idea of, of the, the priest and the Levite, they're on their way to the temple and they pass the man who's got a need, but their heart don't go out to him and they're not willing to change their plans to bring hope to a person who's hurting. Do we weep for the things that make Jesus weep? Thirdly, do, we, do, you, have a heart, do you have a heart for your city? Do you have a heart for your community? Do you have a heart that our community would come to know the good news of Jesus? Do we have a heart for that? Or do we simply have a heart to do our Christian stuff? Just like the, the religious leaders who were going about their stuff or even the pilgrims who went up to the temple to do their stuff. But do we have a heart for our city? Would we allow ourselves like Jesus to be broken? For our city. Fourth question Are we like the crowds who sing our praise for Jesus 
But when the going gets tough, we get going. And very easily we fall away. And we like the crowds who want Jesus to be what we want him to be. Jesus is coming in. He's going to overthrow the Romans or he's going to overthrow the the religion, religion of the Pharisees. He's going to be our hero in the model that we want him to be. He's going to do our bidding. He's going to fulfill our needs. He's going to be the, the, the Jesus we want him to be in the, in the way we want him to be. Are we just like the crowds? Do we really know Jesus? Are we willing to follow him? Question number five, are we like the religious elite who, who this is linked, want to kind of hold on to power and control for whom religion becomes a, just a part of their life that leads them to have a sense of control and order rather than some people who just submit ourselves to Jesus and say, Jesus, we'll do and be whatever you want us to do and be. Question number six, is Jesus really, really the king of our lives? These are the questions that I began to wrestle with and that I place before you. Let me finish by saying this. I want us as a church to be a people who are sold out for Jesus. A people who want to welcome him, who want to lay our cloaks down in front, who want to praise him and declare his praises for who he really is. To be people who say, Jesus, you are welcome not just on a Sunday, but on a Monday and on a Tuesday into our lives. You're welcome when when the crowds welcome you and when we're part of a celebration of Jesus. But we want to be the people who also stand with Jesus as other people turn away and as the people question Jesus and aren't standing with Jesus in a culture that says Jesus is meaningless, where it's like, You know, people think, why on earth would you go to church? Why on earth would you be a Christian? Why on earth would you follow Jesus? We say, no, we're still going to stand. We're still going to follow. We're still going to sing his praises. But we don't just speak the name of Jesus when we're in church or in our small group, but we speak the name of Jesus and we stand for Jesus wherever we are, whatever that means. Would we be a people who see the city through Jesus' eyes? That's what I long for, that we see our community through Jesus' eyes. Because, you know, our community, our community around here is a pretty comfortable community. It's a pretty affluent community. And I have this thing that really gets under my grill where people see communities where there's poverty and there's, there's really outward brokenness. And people go, yeah, that community really needs Jesus. But people look at a community like ours where it's more affluent and comfortable and middle class and everything seems to be okay. And we don't have the same conviction that these people need Jesus. Do you know what? Whether you're rich or poor, whether your life is comfortable or or, or struggling, whether there's outward brokenness or everything seems together, if people don't know Jesus, they need Jesus just as much. We've got to see our community through Jesus' eyes. May we be a people who who are willing to share in God's mission, the great commission to make Jesus known. And may we be a people who don't simply have the appearance of religion, but may we be a people who are daily transformed into the image of Jesus as the Holy Spirit works in us.
I ask the band to come up as I finish up. Jesus said this to the city. He said, Jerusalem, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. If you only knew Jerusalem, what would bring you peace? If you only knew, if you only would recognize the one who is coming into your midst, that the king is coming. I guess I would say this. If you people of Allgate and people of Bridgewater, people of Stirling, if you this day only knew what would bring you peace, what could bring reconciliation, what could, what, could, what could fill the gap that is there in people's lives that when you drill down the layers below the comfortable middle class life, I find is always there. If they only knew what could bring peace, ultimate peace, peace with God, how will they know unless someone loves them with the love of Jesus, shares with them the gospel of Jesus? And declares the goodness of God to them. May we be those people. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one to whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone telling them? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray this morning giving you thanks that so many of us here have indeed welcomed you into our lives, have made a decision of faith at some point, many of us, many years ago. But Lord, I want to pray for each person here this morning that we would make a fresh choice to say, Jesus, we welcome you. And we want to welcome you into our hearts and we want to see our city and our town and our community through your eyes. Give us your compassion for the lost and for the broken, for those who do not know you as king. May you be the king of our lives, the king in our community, the king in our nation. We pray for change and transformation and revival for our town, our city, our nation and our world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.